Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I'm here with Benjamin Red as usual. How are you, Ben? I'm good. How are you doing, Nizar? Not bad. So we wanted to talk about one specific topic this week, which is um, public maritime properties in Lebanon. Since the Eden Bay Hotel opened on Ramlet by the uh, beach this week, and it's a very controversial topic, and we wanted to do big like, story, a, yeah, really big story. And we wanted to do an episode especially on that topic, but since we didn't have enough time to do the proper research, as we are both wage slaves, I can say. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. No, like, we, we want to bring you guys, like, really good content, and we just didn't feel like it was quite ready to go for this week, so we're going to bring that to you next week. Yeah. And starting next week, we're going to be doing more in-depth stories on specific topics. Yeah, what's current in the news or whatever, but like sort of diving a little bit deeper into this stuff. We've heard that feedback from some of our listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, that uh, maybe just like a roundup of all the news is not the most interesting podcast in the world. <laughs> uh, even though I beg to differ, I find it all fascinating. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we want to go like a little bit more in depth on, on like one story every week. Uh, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, but this week it's going to be a little bit shorter because we we're we're talking about like a roundup of the news of the week. But also we're we're gonna we're gonna go into the cabinet formation, which is the continuing big story, right? Yeah. And but but hopefully like focus on a few things that we haven't really covered before, and that I feel are undercovered at least in the English press here in Lebanon. The the other big story, though, of course, it is the World Cup. Right. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah, we've had uh, a very tragic story this week. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, okay, so everybody was talking about Germany crashing out of the World Cup, mm. right? Like, huge, huge deal. Uh, a lot of people were just, like, very sad about this. But, like, there, there, were, there was actually real-world consequences here in Lebanon for that. Yes, exactly. A young man who was a Brazil fan uh, was celebrating Germany's tragic loss and... Uh, a few people who are Germany fans attacked him, were provoked by his celebration and attacked him. One of them stabbed uh, him with a knife. Apparently, yeah, what, what we've what, heard, yeah. Yeah, exactly, in the news reports. And stabbed him with a knife and uh, the young man died. Yeah. Um, really tragic consequences for a football game. I don't think we've... Uh, yeah, right? Like, who the fuck stabs somebody over a goddamn football game? And, and, and so, like, this is why I say, like, reportedly as well, because maybe there were other things going on, like local you know, rivalries that they just didn't like each other to begin with. And then, like, you're really angry because your team just, you know, crashed out of the World Cup and this guy that you hate his guts is celebrating. Yeah, we, do, we don't know that really the full story, but, um, it, you know, this is, this is definitely not the kind of World Cup story that you, you want to hear, that you like to hear, definitely. or that you ever should hear in a reasonable world, right? Definitely. And I think uh, we have a big problem in Lebanon with the fanaticism around Germany and Brazil. Yeah, so why is it why is it these two teams? It's always these two teams that like seem to inspire the most uh the most emotion, the the the, the craziest cuz this isn't the only event, right? Like we've had Germany fans, Brazil fans like they've gotten into problems in other like with with fewer consequences like nobody's died, but there have been other incidents. Uh there were incidents up in Tripoli like a week ago or something uh, and many stuff like that. And it always seems to be either Brazil or Germany fans or both. What the fuck is it about these two teams? You're asking the wrong person because I was a fanatic Brazil fan and I used to have Ronaldo's <laughs> haircut. And I'm talking about the early Ronaldo, which was the worst haircut I can ever imagine. It was like just a bit of hair on the front of his head. 
And I used to have it because I loved Ronaldo so much. And then I became a fanatic Germany fan. So I'm really the wrong person to answer this question. But I... maybe you're precisely <laughs> the right person to answer it. I mean, there's just so much. Did you ever get into a commun- fight over <laughs> no. over this? Okay, all no. right. Did, I, did anybody cried. ever try to start fights I've been with you about this? And I've cried about like these games. So <laughs> I can say that people have a lot of emotional and, like affiliation with these two teams specifically. But we also had like more positive stories this week as well, uh, especially in the realm of, of uh, drug policy and drug enforcement. Uh, we, we saw a couple of like really great developments this week, right? Yes. Uh, and w- one of these was that the uh, one of the top prosecutors in the country, uh, Samir Hamoud, uh, issued this uh, circular or, or whatever, basically reminding all the prosecutors in the country that, oh, there's this law on the books that really almost nobody is enforcing that if somebody is caught with drugs or whatever, if they're a drug user, then you don't have to prosecute them. You could actually send them to uh, to rehabilitation, to some sort of, to to a center or something uh, where they could get the help that they need instead of trying to extract money or, or putting them in jail for, for a while. So this is actually a really big deal, right? This, this yeah, law has been on the books. It's since... a binding secret from Hamoudou's the head of the um, the head of the public prosecution office in Lebanon, and uh, it's it's true. It's just reminding them of the law. But apparently, according to some reports, only three percent of the cases used to be processed according to this law, which is that the the person has the right to be referred to the addiction committee when they are caught using drugs, and then they go through a process where they. Um, abide by the regulations of this addiction committee and then when they announce that they are free of their addiction they are not detained or they are not prosecuted anymore at all so this is how it's supposed to happen and and what i what i heard you said three percent i heard that this number is basically concentrated here in the capital here in beirut so if you're outside of beirut typically like you don't know this i mean i had no idea this law existed me neither and, and i think we're relatively like well-informed about most things that we had no idea right that this even existed i've known people like i know uh lawyers who defend uh uh, people i know uh, people who have been caught uh for for drug possession uh you know and i've never heard of this yeah but then again we need to remind everyone um especially people who are in lebanon that this does not mean that if you are caught using drugs you are not investigated you will you might be detained and investigated for 48 hours which usually happens sometimes it's extended to uh, four days but um, you have the right to automatically be referred to the addiction committee you cannot be arrested so you cannot go to jail anymore for just using drugs unless you are using drugs after being caught earlier and not Mm -hmm. abiding by the process which is to um, announce that you are getting rid of this addiction even if it's not an addiction it's just the process yeah yeah and so that's that's a huge win i i think for for a lot of people who uh who, who think that you know d- maybe drug policy could be a little bit more humane and a little bit smarter we could we could be smarter about the way that we uh incentivize not using drugs or disincentivizing the use of drugs right definitely uh and and also in that vein not not as important but i think i think it's uh, sort of a big deal that president Aoun uh, came out this week and and said oh drug users are victims not criminals which is i mean yeah there's no legal force behind this but to have the president of the country coming out and making such a uh, such a statement that's uh that really lends a lot of sort of like soft power support to to people who are trying to reform this people who are trying to uh view drugs less as a criminal matter and more as a social matter right definitely 
And by the way, the Ministry of Public Health this week started a text message campaign where it says, who are you supporting? Meaning, like, who are you vouching for in the World Cup, right? Mm. But without saying World Cup, they say, it says, who are you supporting? We are supporting a Lebanon free of addiction and drugs. So people have been a bit sarcastic about it, but uh, it coincided with this decision. So I think it's it's directly related to it. Yeah. There's also another side to this, uh, which nobody's really talking about yet, but maybe this will help restart this conversation about drug production in the country, right? Uh, yep. So out in the Bekaa Valley, there's a lot of places where they uh, where they grow hashish. And you, you think like, well, if we're sort of like tiptoeing towards decriminalizing things, then maybe this could perhaps be a market in the future or, or something that, that could be good, could go from something that's a huge problem right now and causes a lot of security problems in the Bekaa Valley uh, to being something that is actually good for uh, the economy uh, and for uh, Lebanon's trade balance and all of these things. Um, and, and especially if we see, uh, you know, efforts in Europe to decriminalize hashish uh, continue on, which I think the trend suggests yeah. that they will, then this could be something that turns something in Lebanon that's right now a problem into like actually a good thing, right? Yeah, especially that a lot of new political actors, like independent political actors, are talking about this. Yeah. Um, saying, let's legalize the production for medical purposes and let's export some hashish. Depends on right. how pro, uh, how like liberal they are on this. But uh, also Ali Jumlat, uh, very famously, is a strong advocate of decriminalization and of legalization of hashish production because it's a very important economic sector, etc. And because now it's controlled by a few mafias and legalizing it would make it maybe probably more beneficial to more people. Right now, the the fact that it's illegal means that there's a lot of security problems, right, in mm-hmm. Bekaa, which, well, this week we also had, nice segue, by the way, a uh, security plan implemented, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this could, you know, sort of kill two birds with one stone, right, if they were to do it right. Uh, but yeah, there have been a lot of security problems in, That's especially true. in the northern Bekaa Valley, in Baalbek, Hermel, that area. Uh, there have been like shootouts and like fights between clans and fights inside of clans and like just like a string of security incidents over the past month or so that have led to pretty big calls for, you know, like from Berri and from other big politicians, like the army needs to go in and fix things. And so finally the army did that this week. They had started last week with some like mobile checkpoints and this week like they went in and did, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not like this, the Tripoli security plan, right? That, that they did back in what, what 2015 uh, or thereabouts. But it, it definitely is like a ramping up the, of the presence of the army um, and supposedly other security agencies. Uh, they're also doing like some other things, right? Like they are saying you, you can't have tinted windows, <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous. You uh, mean car windows? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's the law. Yeah, yeah. Like this is, uh, you know, Nohan came mm-hmm. out and said like, oh, this is one of the, the steps that we're taking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which, which, okay, that's, that that's good, I guess, but like, there's already a rule against that, so that I I don't know, I don't know how useful that's going to be. As my uh, my colleague Joseph Habush, uh, the Daily Star pointed out, like a lot of these cars don't have license plates even. Mm. So how are you going to enforce like a rule against tinting windows? Uh, that's that could prove yeah. to be sort of problematic. That's true. Uh, also in that neck of the woods, uh, 
in Arcel, we had uh, the return of about 300 refugees this week. Um, so th this is, I think, uh, Abbas Ibrahim, the director general of general security, uh, called it like the first installment or whatever of of refugees returning mm. to Syria. Uh, and Arcel has a lot of refugees. So this is like a, a, a relatively small number. Supposedly it was supposed to be 400, but apparently like 296 ended up going back, uh, according to uh, a report I read in, I think, Middle East Eye. Mm -hmm. um, and and. and like, so the weird thing is, though, if you're going back, the 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 process of it is that like you give your name to like somebody like general security or whatever, then they check with Damascus and like the names are okay to go back. Uh, I, I guess, and if you do go back, then you're supposed to like basically say, yeah, I'm I'm gonna you know cooperate with the government with the Syrian government, mm -hmm. uh, and. And number two, like if if I'm supposed to go into like military service, then I'm I'll you know do that or, mm. or do do like the things that that is legally required of me, which I, I think in Syria like it, it, it's mandatory service for males between like eighteen and forty two or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so so those are the conditions. Uh, the in in this uh, Middle East Eye report, it, it was interesting. They they uh, talked to uh, one person I think who had a, a family like nobody wanted to go back because they didn't want to, you know, put themselves at risk. I, I guess this was, I think, a family that was uh, like sort of closely associated with like the opposition or some opposition faction. Uh, but they said like one of their family members did like put his name down to go back uh, because he wanted to like go and check on his property or, or he wanted to go back and like make sure that, his, that he was able to claim his property mm -hmm. uh, and it wouldn't be taken away under the uh, the new Syrian law of right that says yep. if you don't register, you know, your properties, then we're we have to redevelop the country and we're just going to uh, take this and uh, redevelop you with, with or without you. So come and claim your properties. Right. Mm. Uh, so so it's interesting the the situation that these refugees are in, like a lot of them clearly want to go back. Because like a lot of them are not, uh, you know, being a refugee sucks, mm. basically, right? Uh, so they they want to go back and not be a refugee anymore. They want to go back and claim their property, but some of them are sort of in a tight spot, especially if they had ties to the opposition or or, or something like that, right? Definitely, it's uh, it's it's something to uh, look into in more details. I think for the future, because if we're gonna have waves of refugees coming back in the future. It's a very controversial, it's a very sensitive topic, like how they come back, on which conditions, who controls their fate, etc. Especially that we heard Nasrallah speaking this week about Hezbollah having a role in this in the future, right? Yeah, right. A direct role, which seems like yeah. that's, that is pretty huge, right? Incomprehensible, to be honest, yeah. to anyone. Like, why would Hezbollah have a role in resettling refugees from one like country a direct to role like yeah. talking to refugees like themselves pretty phenomenal uh for him for him to come out and say that but also this this highlights how important hezbollah thinks this situation is um mm. they seem they seem to judge it like oh this is this is a, a big enough deal that we need to sort of roll up our sleeves and get to work personally rather than letting abbas ibrahim or like other state actors do it on their own. Like we need to get involved. I guess they're they're worried about what could happen if they don't. If if this is not if the refugees' return is not facilitated in a pretty quick fashion. And it's really worrying as well if you consider that Assad has been accused of large-scale demographic engineering in Syria, like replacing 
populations with other populations for political purposes. And Hezbollah being Assad's closest ally might be involved in this, in this probably in this like large operation and resettling refugees might be part of it. So it looks a bit worrying to me. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot, I a lot of the details that I haven't really seen fleshed out here, um, but it's definitely something that I, th- I think uh, we'll have to keep an eye on. And certainly, like, you you expect, like, Human Rights Watch and those kinds of people, Amnesty, to keep a very close eye on. Definitely. Um, he also, Nasrallah also spoke about the cabinet this week, right? Uh, Surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is, this is, this is as we said at the top uh, of the broadcast, like, this is the, the big topic, the continuing big topic of... <laughs> of of all of Lebanese politics right now. Um so like just like just to recap really quickly because we we've talked about this before. There there are sort of like three main issues that are holding up the cabinet formation. Oh, and by the way, by the time you're listening to this, we're we're recording this on Saturday. By the time you're listening to this on Monday, it will have just been 39 days since Hariri was uh designated as prime minister. So if he were to form a cabinet right now, it would be really, really early, right? Yeah. It, 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 the last cabinet that was formed uh, in 2016, um, it, he formed it. It took 45 days, and that was considered lightning fast, yeah. right? Uh, 45 days is a very, very short amount of time. Story. <laughs> right, right. So just just to give you uh, you guys like a little bit of history on on the number on how long it takes to form a cabinet. Hariri's formation in 2016 was 45 days, very fast. Tamem Salem, when he was tasked to form a government in 2013, it took until the next year in 2014, 315 days. Wow. Yeah, like 10 months. It took him 10 months to form a government. Uh, when Ma'ati was tasked to form a government uh, before that in 2011, it took him 139 days. Uh Hariri's formation of his 2009 government took 135 days. And then uh, if we go back even further, uh, Senora in 2008 took 44 days, pretty fast. Uh, His first time in in 2005, after the elections in 2005, it only took him 19 days. And then we have to go all the way back to 2005 Makati's government. Uh, It took only four days to get like a reasonable number. You have to go all the way back to 2005 basically back to the assassination of Rafiq Hariri yep. uh, to get uh, a a reasonable, you know, amount of time, like four days to form a government. Uh, point being, in modern historical terms, if Hariri were to form a government now, it would be very, very, very fast. So people saying like, oh, of course the government is going to take long. I, I, don't, I don't disagree. Like, probably we are looking at a couple more months, but like, we're not at that point right now. Like, uh, throw in the towel. It's not going to be a quick formation. Yeah, so we can be quite optimistic about it. But Really? About the fact that it's going to be formed. However, the fact that the cabinet will be a smaller version of the parliament, as we have said earlier, and that all parties will, pre- will be represented in it, it's going to be a bad idea anyway, because there will be no accountability, no proper like legislative process, etc. Right. But, but in order to get to that point, though, we have to go through, like people are talking about at least a couple more weeks now. Um, it, we, we had heard during uh, 
during Ramadan, we had heard like Berri saying like, oh, uh, the cabinet should be formed by the end of June. Well, that clearly didn't happen. Uh, Hariri was saying like, oh, after Eid, it should be formed roughly the same time frame. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, and so now it looks like, oh, no, it, it, it definitely after is going to take. Uh, maybe now after the World Cup. Yeah. Uh, this makes sense uh, to me. at least. Right. Right, right. Otherwise, be... no one will notice. <laughs> like, who cares if there's a cabinet being formed, if, if there's a World yeah. Cup final happening? Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, though, because all of this happens against the backdrop of polit- politicians being very optimistic, you know, in public and saying, oh, we're doing this quickly, you know, we're, we're working as quickly as possible. But, you know, everybody, like, off the record seems to think, oh, no, this is this is going to take longer than we thought. Yeah. But my only point there was that, like, we're not there yet of it being like a three month process. We're still only at like the month and a half mark. Uh, so so it's it's too early to be super, super pessimistic, I think. <laughs> right. And, and so in order to form the cabinet right now, there are three things that people are talking about, three main obstacles. Right. And we've talked about some of these before. Uh, we've talked about the Druze obstacle. Wally Jumblad wants all three Druze seats in the 30 member cabinet. Uh, whereas Dalal Arslan and uh, backed by the FPM wants one of those seats, right? Yep. This is a manageable issue. This could be solved, right? If they wanted to, though. Uh, the second thing, uh, which I don't, I don't think we've talked about, and I don't think has been mentioned a whole lot in the in the English-speaking press here, is the question of Sunni representation. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, Saad Hariri wants to name all six Sunni uh, Sunni seats in in uh, cabinet. Um, but he doesn't really have the numbers to support that. Uh, first off, if you just look at, you know, how many seats, uh, the future movement got in parliament, they got 20 seats, which would work out, uh, to them having about five seats, like 4.7 ministers, right? So like five ministers, but there are six Sunni ministers. Uh, so already Hariri seems to be asking to get like a larger share than what uh, his parliamentary representation would suggest he should get. Mm -hmm. That's issue number one. Issue number two is that if you look at the percentage of Sunni seats that he got in parliament, he only got 17 out of 27 of them. Definitely the majority uh, easily, but we've got 10 other Sunnis in parliament who, uh, you know, arguably... They should get, you know, one or two seats, one or be able to name one or two of those Sunni uh, uh, members of cabinet. Right. Mm-hmm. And these are uh, largely Sunnis who are affiliated or or supportive of uh, the resistance of uh, Hezbollah, Amal. Right. You, you, you've got people like Osama Saad and uh, uh, Abdul uh, Rahim Rad, um, in addition to others like uh, Mekati. Uh, I think Mekati Though that's an interesting case, you think like, okay, this is one of Lebanon's most important Sunni leaders, right? He's been prime minister twice now. Uh, He's, you know, he got the most votes of anybody in Tripoli in this last election. So he's, you know, very popular uh, by that metric as well. Um, Four MPs in his block. Yeah, four MPs. But if you look at those MPs, Mm -hmm. he's the only Sunni. Which is oh, weird, right. right? So mm-hmm. he's got he's got a Sunni, he's got an Orthodox, he's got a Maronite, and he's got uh, an Alawite in his block. So does he really deserve to name a Sunni minister? I don't know. He, de- he definitely seems to have a, a, a size 
a, a block that uh, is sizable enough to name a minister for sure. But whether that's a Sunni minister or something else is another question. And so what you see is that maybe this is a way to get around this question of Sunni representation as a hurdle. Maybe you could give Makati a Christian minister so he still gets to name somebody, but but then uh, keep all of those six uh, Sunni ministers for Hariri. Mm. And so this is one of those potential solutions. So I think I think if we're looking at the hurdles, like numbers one and two, they're definitely surmountable, right? The Druze representation and the Sunni representation, they are surmountable. A solution has not yet been agreed on, mm-hmm. but I think it could be relatively easily. Uh, but then we have the third hurdle, which is basically, you know, the Christian representation, LF versus FPM. And that's just, this week, everything just, spilled out uh, things got ratcheted up to a crazy degree uh with Aoun that was really funny right so on Monday uh I think it was Monday uh Al Mustabal newspaper had like this thing saying oh uh uh people are sort of inventing customs for cabinet formation and it's making Hariri's life harder yeah uh, right so this is this is like Hariri's newspaper basically mm-hmm. uh, Mustabal um and then I uh, I think it was Tuesday that Aoun came out out of nowhere and said, it is the president's right to name the deputy prime minister, like according to Ta'af and the constitution. I've never heard of that. Right? I, I, I thought I was going crazy. So I went back and looked at the constitution. I went back and looked at Ta'af. And like, they don't say anything about this, right? And so mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't understand what the argument is uh, that, that says, oh, it's the president's prerogative to name this person. It, it seems as though it's just coming out of left field, out of thin air. Um, I'm sure they, I'm sure there is some explanation for it, but I have no idea what it is. And it's not in the text. We should anywhere. mention here that this seat specifically is for Orthodox Christians. Yes. Because it matters a lot. Um, the same idea that uh, we were talking about when the deputy speaker was being elected, right? Yes, yeah. Osav from FPM being the biggest candidate, and then you have Nassar from LF uh, being the candidate, um, the other candidate for the Orthodox deputy speaker seat. Now we have a similar situation. LF had the deputy in the last government, in the current caretaking government, which is Hasbani, the health minister. Yeah. And this time, Aoun is kind of trying to pull it towards his... So it's uh, it's really interesting how much this FPM-LF thing got, has escalated. Like... This Arab yeah. agreement thing that we had been hoping would smoothen things out has not really worked out. Right. Uh, and another dimension of this is the LF is also coming out and and talking specifically about Basile. Um, like we had a uh, new MP, Wahbe Katisha, uh, from Akkar, uh, LF MP, coming out saying this week, you know, like Basile is trying to, uh, like, get this monopoly over us. He's trying to downsize the LF. He's mm. uh, like every everybody, not just the LF. Uh, others have suggested he's also coming out against like the PSP and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Uh, um, with his Arsen, uh, uh, that whole thing. And so it, it seems as though it's it's increasingly personal, personally directed towards Basile uh, as well. I mean, maybe that's just my perception and maybe I'm seeing it wrong. It seems to me that LF is actually trying to fi- fight on two frontiers at the same time, right? They are negotiating with Basile, probably, and with Aoun at the same time. Aoun being the president, trying to get something that Basile cannot get, and Basile being the aggressive, aggressive politician who's trying to get everything. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's a very difficult situation, I think, for Hariri and for LF to be facing not only Hezbollah and Amal as a like, close coalition now, but also two sides of FPM, Basil and Aoun, with different probably approaches, with all the different people in FPM as well, maybe involving in the getting involved in the negotiations figures, like maybe probably Ibrahim Kanaan or... Yeah, like the, this is this is another interesting dimension of this is that we're seeing sort of like within the FPM there's sort of whispers of you know like who's with who and w- which team are you on. You mentioned Elias Busab, uh, you know, being uh, you know one of the one of the candidates to be the deputy parliament speaker. He failed in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, now he seems to be the favored choice of Basile and Aoun, like the Basile Aoun faction in the FPM, to be uh, the deputy prime minister. Uh, and so the question is now, you know, well, what about uh, Shemel Rukos? What about Ibrahim Kanaan? Uh, what about Alain Aoun? Those guys, are they also going to see, you know, ministerial portfolios, for instance, or, or what's going on there? And the sort of unstated subtext of all of this is that everyone is sort of anticipating a breakup of the FPM at some point in the future, right? And so if we can start to sort of see the battle lines, you know, like Aoun is, uh, you know, he's he's an old man. Uh, He's not going to live forever. And at some point in the future... I don't know what you're implying. (laughs) I mean, who knows? Medical science can do a lot of things these days. Uh, But like sort of the conventional wisdom is that at some point... Uh, after Aoun passes away, then there will be a massive power struggle for control of the FPM and for, and for its cadres and for its supporters uh, with Basile on one hand and somebody else on the other. Uh, and I think right now we're starting to see sort of like people trying to read the tea leaves and yeah. trying to discern exactly where all of these other really important figures in the FPM stand and where the alliances are. Definitely. So I, I don't know if we're we're to the point where we can really say exactly where. I don't think it's clear yet. Yeah, it's something yeah. to be. But right now, this is this is about. this is the the subtext of of the negotiations. This is the subtext of all of this politics, all of this uh, you know stuff that's going around uh, around the cabinet formation. Yeah, it's like oh well, in a few years we're gonna see something really big happen, and maybe we can see like the beginnings of it right now. Yeah, that's definitely something we have to keep an eye on in the future. But as we said in the beginning of this podcast, from now on, we'll be focusing more on specific topics. Hopefully this will be uh, a way in which this podcast can have more added value on specific expertise or specific information that people would be interested to to acquire. Coastal properties next week. Woo! Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, We're going to talk yeah. about Eden Bay, but also about this whole public property uh, issue in Lebanon, specifically the coastal properties, the violations, and the activism around it. And, uh, Preview, it gets complicated. Yeah, really complicated. <laughs> and until then, my name is Benjamin Red. My name is Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.